How many were glow last night? All eight of you. Well, I'm telling you, I've worked here for more than 30 years, and I have never been in this room when there was more energy. It was so exciting. Last year, I think we had 500 people who came to this. This is, what, this is kind of our great Christmas outreach. This is really for uh, the community, for, for, for families especially, for kids especially, families of kids that, that have never set foot in the church. But this is a safe place to come in and, and have some excitement and sing some music. And uh, last year we had 500. We had 867 people uh, show up uh, last night. It was very... It was very fun. I said, okay, kids, time for a, a children's sermon. And it just kept coming, man. I, I, wow, I'm happy to be here this morning. <laughs> I, you, I mention it because even though you're not there, that's one of your ministries. That's one of your ways of reaching out and, and drawing people in to discover the love of Christ. So thank you for all you do to make that possible. You don't have to like it uh, personally to not love what God is doing through that. So thank you for your support. If you were a, a follower of Jesus, and I know we got a lot of them here this morning, you know that he gave us marching orders uh, as he was getting ready to leave this earth and go back to the Father. He said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the, of the earth. And this idea of witnessing for Jesus, it can be intimidating at times, can't it? It feels like there's a lot of pressure not to screw it up. And especially at Christmas time when we all have all of these oughts and shoulds laying upon us. We, we ought to be inviting our friend, unchurched friends to church. We should be able to explain the, the real meaning of Christmas, but it is a lot of pressure. And believe me, I get it. I got it last night as I was trying to preach to a, about a million little kids and their parents who were sitting back there glad that they were up here. I feel that every Christmas Eve, uh, thousands of people show up, and it's probably the one shot that I'm going to have at them for a year, for many of them. And so much is riding on that one sermon, that one testimony, that one witness, that it can be overwhelming. And if you realize that the ultimate motivation for loving our neighbor, which we've talked a lot about this year, the ultimate motivation is to be an effective witness for Jesus. It can be an overwhelming burden to get it right. Get it right. Have you ever felt that way? Well, I've got an early Christmas present for you, and I want to take some pressure off. That's what we are trying to do with this Advent series as we're making our way through the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And I know you seasoned Bible people know very well the power of that first chapter of John. John 1 starts, it's often recited, big chunks of it are recited on our Christmas Eve services. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then we jump down to verse 14, John's Christmas story. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of glory, and we have beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know those passages, soaring, majestic descriptions of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-eternity Christ who was there all, all of eternity, but suddenly comes to be in our midst. It's, it's powerful stuff. You'll never find more soaring prose to try to describe the, the coming of Jesus to the earth. But tucked in between those verses, little, little blips are references to the most famous witness that Jesus ever had. 
And that's a guy named, we call John the Baptist. How many of you have heard of a, of a theologian named Harry Callahan? Anybody? Anybody read him? You might have known him as, by his nickname, Dirty Harry. You heard of him? <laughs> Dirty Harry once said famously, a man's got to know his limitation. Well, John, the, uh, you know, next service, they're not even going to know who Dirty Harry is. So I'm just going to, I'm going to milk the laughter while I got it because it's going to be crickets next service. <laughs> John the Baptist knew his limitations. It would have been easy for him to think more highly of himself than he ought to. As I told you last week, he was a religious rock star. It had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people through a prophet. Four centuries of silence and of the Israelites praying for a return of the word from the Lord. And finally John shows up and the silence was broken. He began preaching out in the middle of nowhere. And believe me, these were not seeker-sensitive, user-friendly sermons. He let everyone know that they were in it. He talked, spoke to everyone about rebellion and idolatry and disobedience. And still they thronged to hear him by the thousands. They thronged to him to listen and to repent and to be baptized in the rivers of the Jordan. Even his cousin Jesus of Nazareth was baptized by John. And he validated the ministry of this guy who he would later call the goat. Greatest of all time human beings. That's what he said. Jesus said, John was the greatest human ever born of woman. But as famous as he was, even with this endorsement of Jesus, John kept his ego in check. He he just kept pointing to Jesus, as we're going to find in our text for this morning. So if you want to turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 19... John chapter 1, verse 19. This is uh, the, the Advent reading for the morning. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Then what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to us through these powerful words, these humble words of your great witness, that we too might be great witnesses for Jesus. For we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm sure most of you know Christ is not Jesus' last name. You got that, right? And by the way, despite what some of your dads might have uttered from time to time, H was not his middle initial either. Christ is the Greek word that means anointed one. Did you know that? Anointed one. And in Jewish culture, a person was chosen to be king, and when he was, he would be anointed by the priest with oil. 
The anointing was a symbol of a setting apart for God's purposes, a pouring out of the Spirit upon that person. It meant that they had special authority, special gifts, an imbuing of the Spirit of God. Christ was also the Greek translation for a very familiar Hebrew word. Do you know what it is? Messiah. Christ is Greek for Messiah. And you know that in the Old Testament, Messiah it was referring to a future king. A king who was going to be born in the line of David, but a king whose, whose kingdom would last forever. This Messiah is mentioned again and again and again and again and again throughout various books of the Old Testament. Every Christmas Eve, you hear some parts of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. Like out of Isaiah 9, you know this one. We, we use it when we light our Advent candles on Christmas Eve. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a messianic prophecy. Every Passover, which is the, the, at the ritual supper, the Seder meal that they had, every Passover includes prayers for the coming Messiah. They, they're just waiting for him to come still. Every observant Jew was looking for the arrival of the long-awaited anointed one. And by that first century, after 400 years without a single word from the Lord... And after a hundred years of living under the boot of Roman oppression, the people were crying, longing for the Messiah to come. They wanted a rescuer. They wanted a hero who would kick out the Romans and restore God's kingdom on earth. The Messiah, the Christ, would be their savior, their rescuer, their deliverer. Just to make sure that we knew he had come, the Old Testament even promised that there would be an opening act. So that they would recognize him. God promised he was going to send someone to announce his arrival. And essentially to serve as a warm-up act for the Messiah. And we find that in the very last two verses of the Old Testament. A wonderful prophetic word. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. The very last two verses in the Old Testament. And chronologically, the very last two verses that God would ever speak through a prophet Until John came. Here's the last verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn, don't you love this? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are the last words we heard for 400 years. Now, Elijah, just so you know, and you recall, he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. If you wanted to epitomize all of the prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah was your guy. Elijah was the guy that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, along with Moses, representing the law and the prophets. And Elijah, if you recall, one of the, I think, the three characters in the Bible who did not die. He was lifted up into heaven with a a fiery chariot. And Malachi promised that one day Elijah, or someone very much like Elijah, someone in the spirit of Elijah, would return as the opening act for the Messiah. That sets us all up. 
So when the word reached Jerusalem, that some wild-haired, wild-eyed guy was preaching by the River Jordan, and the thousands of people were making the road trip out to hear him, naturally the, the religious poobahs set it upon themselves to take note. They set up. They really were paying attention to this especially the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious fundamentalists. They were the ones that wanted to make sure everything was just right and just so. They would become Jesus' most ardent enemies, by the way. And they were particularly concerned to vet this guy and make sure he was literally kosher. That's what happens in today's story. The inquisitors sent on behalf of the Pharisees, they arrive and they start questioning John. They say, who are you? Who, who gives you the right to preach this way? Who gives you the right to baptize this way? Are you Christ, the Christ, the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you another prophet? And every time John replies the same way, nope, 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 nope. By the way, he was being overly modest as it turns out. Because later on Jesus would say, and we figured Jesus knew better, That John was, in fact, the fulfillment of that Elijah prophecy. But in that moment, John, very humbly, diverting the spotlight from himself, he says, I am none of these guys, and I am most certainly not the Christ. You remember Dirty Harry's advice, a man's got to know his limitations. Clearly, John the Baptist did. And that's what we've been looking at these last three weeks. He already told us, I am not the light. In other words, I don't have all of the answers, but Jesus does. He told us, I am not first. In other words, he didn't have to set an example for everyone, but Jesus will. And now he says clearly, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the rescuer. But Jesus is. Of all of the lessons we're going to learn from John in this Advent season about how to be a witness, this may be the most important. What it means to be a pointer to Christ, this may be the most important lesson of all. And realizing that we are not the rescuers. However well-intentioned we might be, if we think we are responsible for saving people, for rescuing people, If we take that responsibility upon ourselves, it is an unbearable burden for us and a false hope for those that we love. This is important for you to understand about every single earthly spiritual leader. In recent years, we have watched pastors of significant churches, highly respected, persons of great influence, gifted, anointed leaders. We've watched them crash and burn. Sexual misconduct, abuse of power, financial malfeasance, suicide. Every time a pastor falls or fails in spectacular fashion, they do harm to the whole church. But especially to those spiritually immature persons who place them on a Messiah pedestal. Over the years, from time to time, I've had people say things to me like, you're the only reason I come to this church. And I know they mean that as a compliment, but in fact, it is the worst thing that you could say to me. It means that you really don't understand the importance of being a part of Christian community. It means that you really don't understand worship. And it tells me that the minute I'm gone, you'll likely be gone. And worst of all, you have placed me on a Messiah pedestal of which I am unworthy and which I cannot maintain. I promise 
I am trying my best to live a life of integrity, to care for and nurture my marriage, to deal honestly with money, to do battle with pride, to stay in accountability with Christian brothers. But if I or any pastor is the only reason that you come to church, what happens when we fail or fall or stumble or leave or disappoint? For surely we will all do that in some way, great or small, sooner or later. As tempting as it might be for us to receive the adulation from adoring fans, it is toxic for us and it is dangerous for you because there is only one Messiah, the Christ, the Rescuer, and I am not the guy. And neither are you, by the way. John's warning applies just as surely to every one of us because there are times when we take on the role of Rescuer, take on the role of Savior in the lives of those we love. We not only empathize with their their problems, we personalize them. We not only point them to resources, we take on the responsibility for straightening them out. I see it every week. I saw it last week. Rescuers, people who think that they have the responsibility of straightening out the life of someone that they love. I hear it from the wife who is desperate that her husband will follow Christ and wants to save him. I hear it from the parent who's frantic about their wayward child and wants to save her. I hear it from the grandparent, scared to death of the life trajectory of her grandson and wants to save him. And not only can we not save anyone, we can do more harm than good when we try. Two weeks ago, 70 of us returned from our Thanksgiving pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm already receiving requests. Do it again. Do it again. So, all right, save the date. March 2022. There you go. Save it. Call Kathy. Get yourself on the wait list. We'll see what we do. But we got back, 70 of us, and I have been there 10 times. Every time you face unexpected things as part of what travel means, I have never had anything like this happen. We were visiting Masada, that well-known mountaintop fortress near the Dead Sea, where 900 Jewish rebels uh, committed suicide rather than to be taken captive by the Roman army. I had already returned to the bottom by cable car when I got a call from my beloved Cindy, who was still at the top with the remainder of the group. And she said, Phil Vance has just collapsed, and they are giving him chest compressions right now. I could hardly believe my ears. Phil is a young man. He's a doctor. He's in good shape. I couldn't imagine that he was receiving CPR. It was a devastating piece of news. And I just had to stand there and wait for the cable car to come down and and find out what was going on. So imagine my surprise when Phil walks off of the cable car. He was pale. He was shaken. But apparently he was all right. So here's the rest of the story. Phil had been ill, probably a combination of flu and dehydration, and he was standing in line waiting for the car when he said to the man next to him, my blood pressure is dropping, I'm going down. So the man caught him and he lowered him to the ground and all was fine. But there was a woman whom Phil would later describe as a Bulgarian weightlifter. who had apparently just received CPR training and was eager to put it to use. (laughs) 
So she saw Phil go down. And without bothering to check and see if he had a pulse, she climbed on his chest and began, staying alive, staying alive. As it turns out, his heart was fine, but his ribs aren't. She cracked four of his ribs. Phil is very gracious when he speaks about his eager would-be rescuer. But as it turns out, he didn't need rescuing. At least not that kind. It turns out that the rescuing did more harm than good. You can't save anyone. Not even those that you love the most. And if you try to save them, you may do more harm than good. I am not the Christ. I am not the Savior. I am not the rescuer. And neither is you. What a relief. So then, according to John, what are we? Well, we are a voice. We are a guide, a witness, a pointer to the one who is the Christ. When John answered their questions, he quoted Isaiah. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, what was he talking about? In the Old Testament, when a king was going to travel from one part of his realm to another, there were often no highways. So when the king traveled, an army would go before him, removing obstacles, pulling up stumps, filling in gullies, cutting out hillsides, building bridges. An army! And their job was to make the way as straight and flat and easy as possible so that the king could get where he wanted to go. That's our job. Our job is to be the voice of witness, to make the way straighter between our loved ones and the king that they might not even know yet, to knock down every obstacle, every impediment that would hinder hinder the king from reaching his people. How do we do that? How do we make a straight way? Well, we answer honest questions honestly. We speak words of love and kindness and support. We perform disarming acts of hospitality and kindness. We invite people into our lives and into our marriages, into our homes, into our churches to see what a Christ lover lives like. Not perfect, but authentic. And most of all, we point, 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 point to Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Savior, who is the Messiah. That's who we are. That's all we need to be this Christmas and every other Christmas. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So Holy Spirit, will you do what you need to do in each heart? Those who do not take seriously your call to witness, would you stir in us the desire to point to you who have made such a difference in our life? And to those of us who want to but are frightened, terrified, overwhelmed, would you help set us at ease to realize that we don't have to have the answers, we don't have to be the example, so we don't have to be the rescuer, but we have to know the one who is and point to you repeatedly, consistently, faithfully, and assuredly. So Lord, I pray that you will stir us to go out this day and that that will be our heart to be a witness for you, to be a pointer for you, to be a voice for you. 
nothing complex, nothing hard, nothing overwhelming, simply to say, this is, this is Jesus. You might want to meet him because he sure changed my life in a good way. And he could yours too. Lord, make us the witnesses you long for us to be. Help us to remove the impediments that keep you from the people that you want to love and touch and change. Help us to make your way straight for you by the things we say, by the hospitality that we extend, by the kindness that we show, by the love that we bear. And may many this Christmas and in all of our lives, may many come to discover who the Messiah, the Christ, really is. But we ask that in his name. Amen.